0: My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Every month, in hospitals and residency programs across the United States, a curious meeting happens. Doctors and resident physicians gather, usually over lunch, for a conference known as Morbidity and Mortality. Now, this rather bleak-sounding meeting is quite astonishing to witness. Doctors voluntarily choose their own cases where something went wrong. Maybe a patient died or was injured. Perhaps something dangerous could have occurred but was averted at the last minute. Either way, the purpose is for the physician and his colleagues to discuss how these issues can be avoided in the future. It's meant to be a non judgmental hour to encourage openness. And the goal, importantly, is not to lambast the doctor, the nurse, the patient, or really anyone involved. But in its best form, it focuses on how to create a system that works better. Last month, we had our first and M&M, that's morbidity and mortality, conference at our clinic. The idea of revealing your mistakes and poor outcomes goes against the grain of politics in Haiti in particular, and nonprofits in general. The government in Haiti wants to hear good news, and donors in the United States want to hear about successes. But those of us who have worked in effective organizations Know that you must confront problems if you have any hopes of improving, much less becoming a great clinic. And so we sat down to discuss our first case. We gathered myself, Dr. Lolo, he's our medical director, Dr. Donald, and then also our head nurse and our head nutrition nurse. I was the physician who had taken care of the patient in the story, and so it was my duty to give a summary of what had happened. I'm going to present it here, but forgive me, it is presented a little like you would on a medical form but it gives you a flavor of being there in the conference. In short, you are going to hear the story of us trying and ultimately failing to obtain treatment for a child with tuberculosis. Here it is. The patient came to the Lesboati Moon Clinic at the age of 28 months with malnutrition in the company of her mother. Her upper arm circumference was 113 centimeters. For those of you listening, that meets criteria for severe acute malnutrition. And her height for weight was equal to three standard deviations from the median, Again, that's just kind of a fancy way of saying that she was very underweight for her height. She was brought in by her mother, who was also pregnant. She was admitted to PTA. Now, PTA is just the program that we use to treat children with severe acute malnutrition. On the first visit, I noticed that there was a bulge in her thoracic spine around T8. That's about the middle of the spine. There was no reported history of trauma or falls, and she had persistent lymphadenopathy, that just means lymph nodes that were enlarged, of the cervical neck. There was concern for osteomyelitis, that's an infection of the bone, of the spine, but the primary concern was for tuberculosis of the spine, and thus the patient was sent for an x-ray at another facility. Given the poverty of the parent, the patient was given aid to help her pay for the x-ray. The Next week, the patient came with the results of the x-ray. They demonstrated severe spondylolisthesis, which could represent Potts disease. Now that's the somewhat fancy way of saying tuberculosis of the spine. The patient was then referred to Adventist Hospital in Carrefour, a city across Port-au-Prince, to see an orthopedic surgeon who treated our last patient with tuberculosis of the spine. She was given 500 goods for transportation. That's, that's about $5. The mother returned to Les Potimoune the next week and reported that she had arrived at that hospital, but the orthopedic surgeon was not there for the day. We then asked her to return to the hospital on a day when he would be there. The next week, the patient and her mother returned to Les Potimoune. They reported that they had used the money for transportation, but upon arriving to Adventist Hospital, they were told that they needed to have more than 1,000 goods, that's about $10, available for consultation and possible radiography. By this point, gang violence had started to rise on the way to Adventist Hospital, and thus we needed to come up with another plan. Two weeks later, the patient returned with her sister. The mother had given birth to her new child and was now staying at home with a new baby, So, it would be the sister who was taking care of the child. The sister informed us that she herself had actually had tuberculosis the year before and had not finished her treatment. At this point, it was clear that this child had tuberculosis of the spine and probably of her lymph nodes. The sister noted that she had been treated at a tuberculosis center in Delma, that's another city in Port au Prince. She said that she would take her sister there the following week. The next week, the patient returned to PTA. The sister said that they had gone to Delma, but the prices were too high to see a doctor. At this point, We asked a driver at Lisboa Timon to take the patient to a clinic called Gieschio next to the American embassy. The patient was taken there and saw a physician. The physician recommended that the patient return that week for an inpatient stay to obtain a gastric aspirate to attempt to get a definitive diagnosis of tuberculosis. That basically just means that they were going to get some of the spit from the stomach and try and test it to see if they could find any tuberculosis. The sister took the patient to Gieschio that weekend and the patient stayed there. Results were in process. She came to the clinic for PTA that following week. But the next week, the child was brought to the clinic in status epilepticus with a high fever. Again, just doctor speak for the patient being in a seizure that would not stop. This was two and a half months after she was first suspected to have tuberculosis. She was immediately transferred to a local hospital. I spoke with Dr. Pierre, pediatrician in charge. It seemed clear that the patient likely had tuberculosis meningitis or a tuberculoma in the brain. That's basically just a big mass of tuberculosis sitting there in the brain. At the hospital, the patient underwent gene expert testing and was found to be positive for tuberculosis, finally. She was started on rifampin, isoniazide, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, as well as dexamethasone. Those are all medications for tuberculosis. The patient continued to have seizures and fevers for four days and was unconscious. Her left side became paralyzed. After four days, though, her fever did end and seizures subsided. Unfortunately, four days later, seizures resumed. The hospital did not have sufficient medications for seizures, and thus Moon was forced to send a driver to downtown Port-au-Prince to find them. This led to a delay of two days in finding treatment. Two days later, the patient died. Now, this is me speaking. Of all the children I have cared for who have died in the past year and a half, this patient, Millie, her death was the hardest to accept. I knew the diagnosis two and a half months before her death. And it was like watching a slow motion car crash in which I tried everything and nothing worked. And then I had to sit powerless and watch her limp body seize in the hospital. This had nothing to do with negligence on the part of the parent or the sister, but navigating the health system in Haiti is hard. It is so hard. You must realize that each time a patient ventures across town to another hospital is a significant expense for them and a large risk of them falling victim to gang violence. Patients frequently, frequently die just because they can't figure out how to go from one hospital to another. After the story, we sat down for a moment. We all knew the challenges patients face trying to get care in Haiti. But hearing such a drawn-out, prolonged tragedy strikes you differently. And then we went around the room and talked about the issues. And where do you begin, really? Let's just name a few off the bat. How can we prevent a situation where a patient doesn't know the price at a different hospital? How do we ensure that we clearly communicate and know which days a patient is to go? Is it possible for us to make TB diagnoses at the clinic? Is there no way to supply necessary life-saving medications for children in the hospital in a timely fashion? I mean, really, we could have gone a number of ways on this one, but we chose not to get overwhelmed in the case and to focus on the things that we absolutely could change today. Donald, one of our doctors, said that we needed to have a list of hospitals of reference, as well as their phone numbers, basic capabilities, hours, and cost. And you might say, oh my God, I mean, that's common sense, right? Some of these would be easy in the US, for instance, a phone number for the ER. But even in America, finding out the average cost of a procedure at another facility is going to be almost impossible. And to add to this, I like to say that Haiti is very siloed. And by that, I mean that you could have two clinics operating a half mile from each other and they could know very little about each other. Now, sometimes this is malicious because you have two businesses that are competing with each other. But most often I find it's difficult simply because in a country with no power, poor roads, traffic, and gang violence, collaboration is really, really challenging. Given the infrastructure challenges, I rarely find a website with up-to-date information with phone numbers. Businesses open and close frequently, and their hours of operation can be different each day. Even if you had the right phone number, it'll normally go unanswered. With most situations, you have to risk the streets of Port-au-Prince to get a price quote. And so, this type of work is tricky. Donald and I took it upon ourselves to set to work using all of our contacts. I worked with Americans that were in Haiti, and Donald worked with his training hospital to start to compile a list. We started to write down phone numbers and theoretical hours of operation. Under each hospital, we wrote the estimated costs that our former patients had encountered at the hospitals. At least this would allow us to give our patients a ballpark of the money they would need to bring. And, of course, as with anything in Haiti, this would need to be a living list, subject to change at any time. Secondly, we focused on the issue of patients navigating the Haitian health system. Imagine this for a second. You're a poor mother from a rural part of Haiti. You are illiterate, and you don't speak French. You have been to the outskirts of Port-au-Prince once, but never into the city. Your baby is ill, and so you bring him down to the clinic. The doctor checks the child over and then informs you that he's deathly ill, and you need to go directly to a specific hospital that can care for him in the middle of the massive, dangerous metropolis of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. To get care for your baby, you will need to find transportation and successfully navigate to the hospital. Then, you will need to arrive at a hospital with paperwork that you can't read, in French, a language that you don't understand. Not to mention, if you have any questions, there is no one to help. Perhaps the clinic provided a stipend of aid, but you get to the hospital and realize that it's not enough. The price has changed. There's no way to tell the clinic. And this is not the United States. If you arrive at a hospital and don't have enough money, you just can't enter. It's a nightmare. And so we sat and discussed. Eventually, we hit on the idea of an accompagneur. This is, not surprisingly, French for someone who accompanies. This could be a person who is not formally medical, but can advocate for a patient. They can read, they can write, they can speak French. And they know where the hospitals are. They can accompany the patients to the hospital and can call us if there's a problem or not enough money. A full-time, Monday through Friday employee like this would not be expensive. Maybe only $400 a month but their impact could be massive. I told the staff I would work to raise the money. All of these are simple solutions perhaps, but the solutions were not the hard part. The hard part is to admit that you are not perfect, to admit that patients die who should not die. And yes, there are many, many whose lives are saved and we want to celebrate those, but the pressure is to only talk about those. That's what donors wanna hear about. That's what the local health department wants to hear. But we must face the cold, hard reality. And when we do, we can prevent another child like Millie from dying. And perhaps, in the midst of her tragic death, we can redeem meaning. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from Life Here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets. And we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.